Leviticus chapter 21. This evening on Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So if you're visiting with us tonight and you say, what in the world is any church doing uh, in the book of Leviticus on Sunday uh, night? Don't they know that that's a church killer for sure? No, don't believe it. the theme of the book of Leviticus is, uh, the theme is holiness, and our God is a holy God, and uh, he uh, desires us to be a, a holy people. Well, we wouldn't know what holiness is unless he defined it for us. Uh, some people don't know what holiness is biblically, so they come up with all kinds of man-made ideas that look nothing like Christ. Jesus is the standard for holiness, and as we look at the Word of God, all of it is a picture and a a shadow of him and so I'm thankful for this book of Leviticus that teaches us not only how important holiness is to God but then teaching us principles that are uh, that uh, show us what it should look like in our lives now in chapter 21 uh, the Lord gives very specific instructions on how the priests of Israel and also the high priest of Israel how these two groups. One was a large group and one was a group of one, the high priest. There was only one high priest at any given point in time. But how they were to conduct themselves as God's representatives uh, in the world. And so specifically what God brings out in this chapter is by virtue of being priests, he held them to a higher standard, certainly a higher standard than everyone else in the world. And so he Uh, speaks to them about that high standard. The key verse there is in verse 4 where the priests are described as being a chief man among his people. And so they were to be holy even in the context of holiness of all of God's people. So they're ministering in the temple, which is a holy place. They're offering sacrifices, which were holy sacrifices. They were representing a holy God, and so they needed to be holy themselves. And God was just telling them, uh, same thing as he tells us in the New Testament, that if they wanted to hold this position with privilege, is responsibility. They wanted to have this position of influence for the things of God and the kingdom of God. Well, there's a, a, a price that to be paid for that. There's a decision that has to be made to do that and, uh, and, and a, a cost to be counted related to that. And the cost is, am I willing to live a stricter life for the Lord in order to, to do that? And so you go into the New Testament and the pastoral epistles and all we read the requirements of elders and deacons and all and and the standard is uh, very high indeed uh, for that so uh, this uh, early part of the chapter has to do verses 1 through 9 with the priests and it does provide us with some principles um, for us as Christians in the in the New Testament uh, in covenant new covenant the bible in the new testament speaks of all of us as Christians as being Priests. We're called uh, a kingdom of priests. We're called kings and uh, priests. We're called a royal priesthood. And the twofold function of the priest in the Old Testament is the same twofold function that we carry as God's representatives in this world. First responsibility and function of the priest is he was to represent God before the people. So he was to live a life that was consistent with the nature of his God, the holiness of his God. What his God was like, people would look and and felt very, very free, both then and now, felt very free to look at a priest and say, I can come to... 
I can feel free to come to conclusions about their God by watching their life. So the priest was to represent God before the people, then represent the people before God through intercession and through prayer. And so those are the the same things that we do. Now, he begins to speak to the ordinary priests about uh, how they were to conduct themselves in several very specific ways. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and to be a priest you had to be a descendant of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people. He was not to come into contact with uh, a dead body. Uh, one of the reasons was was for a priest to come into contact with a dead body that rendered him... Uh, ceremonially unclean until uh, the through that day and, and until the coming day as the Jews would kind of measure those days and uh, so it would kind of put them out of commission as a priest for a period of time if they came into contact uh, with a dead body. Now there were exceptions for them uh, except for his relatives who were nearest to him. Uh, he could come into contact with his mother in the event of her death, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also his virgin or unmarried uh, sister who was near to him, who had no husband, uh, for her he may defile himself. Otherwise, he shall not defile himself being a chief man among his people to profane himself. So he could, in the event of the death of these people, he could touch them and and mourn related to them, but nothing uh, beyond that. So God was speaking to the priests and telling them, as priests, as his representatives in the world, they were to handle death differently uh, than everyone else in the world uh, handled death. And the, and the application is, is a wonderful application related to us as, as New Testament priests and how we are to express our grief and conduct ourselves you know, in the event of death. And the restriction that God puts on us in the New Testament isn't that we can't touch a loved one who has died, whether uh, close in terms of blood or close in terms of, of friendship. The Bible simply puts the limitation upon us that we are not to grieve in the face of death as those who have no hope. Uh, we are not to conduct ourselves in the face of death of a loved one or of a friend in the way that the world or those that don't know the Lord would be tempted to conduct themselves in the event of, of the death of someone like that as, and they would conduct themselves as one who has no hope in the face of death. Uh, their loved one isn't saved, they have no confidence that they will see this person again, that they'll be in heaven and these kinds of things. And so a, a, Christian, uh, a, a Christian funeral, for instance, should always be dramatically different from any kind of funeral that the world puts on. Uh, because we have a hope concerning the death of, of a Christian loved one, that we're going to see them again. So the world watches us. We don't have to put a big head trip on or anything like that. But the world watches us as Christians and how we conduct ourselves in the face of death, how we process death and, uh, how, uh, and all. And, and they're coming to conclusions about our God on the basis of that. Well, we have a God who has conquered death. And so we look at it differently. When we, when we have a ceremony... I, um, you know, when we uh, officiate at funerals here, it's, uh, um, it's kind of a, a tricky thing because of the culture a little bit. It's, a, it's to be kind of a respectful environment, 
because you, you can't come in here and tap dance or something for them. I mean, they're in heaven. You, everybody, everybody knows that. Excited for them. It's a celebration of their life. Imagine what they're seeing. Imagine what, what they're hearing. Imagine what they're in the middle of. But, you know, you can't let doves loose in the room necessarily and, and balloons and things. But there's, there's that kind of confidence that anger, anchors us. And there should be that kind of, of joy and that kind of, of hope and all. Uh, related to the death of a saint. And so we do, we conduct ourselves very, very differently because of the hope that we have of, of Christians. And uh, so then they shall, he says, verse 5, they shall not make any bald place on their heads. Well, who would do that deliberately? But, but they did. The pagan uh, priests would do that. Nor shall they shave the edges of their beards or make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy. So they weren't to uh, shave their head and, and the edges of their beards or to cut their flesh. These were the things that the pagan priests and pagan people around them as they were going into Canaan would do in the event of death to show their grief and, and this kind of thing. And so God is just saying, listen, don't be conformed to the nations around you, to their ways, to their conduct and, and all. Don't be fashioned by the pagan culture uh, uh, around you and uh, uh, come conduct yourselves the way that they conduct themselves. And so uh, in, in all of this there was to be a consciousness in the priest that he was, as a priest, an example to the children of God. And he needed to be a good example. You can't go to the world and get a good example for representing a holy God. We have to go to the Bible to, to get that kind of information. This is the great, great mistake that's being made today and it's been made for 15 years, the body of Christ, of an attempt to become like the world in order to reach the world. We don't go to the world to be fashioned by it and conformed by it. We have someone far wiser, far greater, that wants to conform our lives and make us like uh, Christ. And, and so the priest was not to be one that would go to the world, be fashioned by it. He was to always have that consciousness that he, he is an example to God's people and people will come to conclusions even within the nation of Israel, but even within the body of Christ. Someone, for instance, in my position, if, if I go and start to do things according to the world and all, then people will look and say, wow, then I can do that too. And, and uh, they weren't free to do that. I think about what uh, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. Not just an example to the world, but live a life that's an example to the body of Christ even. Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And so all Christians, certainly all Christian leaders, uh, have to stay conscious of the fact that God has given us a, a position of influence and we should always use it to set a good example and never to set a bad example. And so uh, never want to trip people up with worldliness or trip them up with hypocrisy or anything like that. A third requirement was they shall not take a wife who is a harlot. You go, what? He had to say that? But in, in that pagan culture, very often the priests of these pagan religions, they would marry the priestesses that were also 
uh, a part of the worship at these uh, pagan temples. And, the, and typically a pagan priestess was also a harlot. She was uh, a prostitute at the, at the temple. And so God would say, told him, you're not to take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, uh, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband. So a priest was not to marry a divorced woman, for the priest is holy to his God. And therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God, and he shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And so here the Lord tells the priest how they are to select uh, a wife. He was to be very, very strict regarding who he would consider uh, for marriage. Because in that culture, uh, more in that culture than in this kind of free-flowing American culture that we, we live in, his choice as a wife would reflect very heavily on his reputation and it would reflect very heavily on whether he had a genuine concern for holiness uh, or for godliness. And so he was not to marry anyone that would cause a distraction to what his calling was on his life and send mixed messages. He does this over here related to serving God and these things, but over here he makes decisions just like the world in terms of, of this area of his life. And so he wasn't to marry anyone that would impair his ministry. And that's a very important thing for young and old, but especially for young to realize if you have a sense of God's calling on your life as a young person, you need to marry someone who shares your convictions, shares your commitment to the Lord, and shares a vision for the world that, that you share and is willing to come alongside you in order for you to fulfill that calling. Uh, otherwise, that person is going to impair you in, in that, that calling. So it's not enough just that in, in the, the parallel in the New Testament as the Bible says for us as Christians that we are only to marry in the Lord. A Christian is only to marry another Christian. But I like what Paul also writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, he said, flee also, and Timothy's a pastor, and he said, flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So Paul is telling Timothy, listen, hang around this kind of person, just as his peers, just as his influencers in his life. How much more important is it to choose a husband and a wife that shares the same kind of, or a wife, don't get both, uh, a husband or a wife that, that shares those same characteristics. Sometimes people think, wow, you know, she looks like this in a knockout nurse. She's not very spiritual and everything. Wow, look at him. I mean, ever seen muscles like that? And he's so, oh my, you know. And all, but I, I, he's not very much spiritually, not really spiritually minded or a thing for the things of the Lord, but I'll change him. Ha! <laughs> You'll change him. One of my favorite sayings related to all of that is what a person is single, they are even more of married. I, I suppose I could ask for an amen, but it would be risky, wouldn't it? A room like this. Yes, I got one up here in the front. She's sitting alone. Dad, I'm just kidding. I don't know that for sure. But it's true. It's true, isn't it? And so the, the importance uh, of, 
of this. And occasionally you can change them. And we praise the Lord for that kind of grace. But it's no place for a risking. No place to risk for someone who is wanting their life to make a, a difference for the Lord uh, in this uh, world. So he, they were to be careful in this area of, of their life. And then related to their family life, verse 9, the daughter of a priest if she profanes herself by playing the harlot. So the daughter of a priest in that culture becoming a harlot, wow. I mean, it would be astonishing uh, uh, life choice. She profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. Now let's talk about that for a moment. In that culture, again, even more than in our culture, but it does exist in our culture. In that culture, the children were absolutely a reflection on the parents. People did not differentiate between the two. Even grown, they did not differentiate between the two. So adult children could bring tremendous shame to the family and hinder the office and the calling of a priest. And, and so here is a, a strong, strong warning. For her to become a harlot in the face of the holiness of the context that she would have been raised in, the standard that would have been a part of, of that people, that would have represented a deliberate decision on her part to, to go out and to do this, and she would know that she was uh, destroying the reputation uh, of her father and the reputation of the family. Now, when it talks about her being burned with fire, don't think of her being burned alive by fire. Uh, death was always by stoning and a capital crime. And, uh, is, and, and then what they would do in the case of heinous kind of, of sin or crime, they would then burn the body. In other words, uh, this person was to disappear. Any thought of her, any trace of her, of her unholiness, of her decision, was just to simply disappear in terms of the lineage of, of the family. We see it later on in Joshua. When Achan is, is stoned, uh, we see the same progression. He is stoned and then burned with fire to remove the, any trace of him in, in the history of the conquest of the land, so to speak, in, in, uh, 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 in the book of, of Joshua. Now, in the same way, Christian leaders, and, and really Christians in general, but Christian, Christians in, in the world, but Christian leaders are held to a higher standard related to their children and, and re related to their family. But for us, it's specifically children still living at home. Once we've raised them up and they've hit adult life and they start to make decisions on their own, this is not a theocracy in the United States of America. They become very much a reflection of themselves and the decisions that they, that they make. But there was to be that kind of standard within within the home. Now, when you go into the New Testament and the pastoral epistles, we see that there's a, a high standard demanded of elders and deacons concerning their children. Concerning elders, Paul wrote, he said, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God, which is a much harder task. For deacons, it declares that deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their households well. And so there needed to be that, uh, that training and that uh, uh, laying in the minds of the whole family that this is, God has a calling not just upon dad as the priest, but it's a calling upon the whole family. That was one of the things that you know, we tried to do in, in, in raising our two daughters. 
I don't think that we ever, and I, and I, haven't, I, I have never consciously um, ever even related to pastoral staff and, and elders here, leadership in the church, I, I have never ever put pressure on them for their children to uh, live a right life and that kind of, of thing because their dad is a leader in the church. Um, there is a standard that's demanded, but that's, that's to be demanded within the household because they're Christians and not just because somebody's a leader. So one of the things you can do with uh, you know, preacher's kids or PKs, as they're called and all, is you, know, you can't make a mistake and you've got to be perfect and this way and everything because if it's going to be a reflection on us. And, and, every, and so you can kill these kids and they'll walk out the door when they're 18 or 14 and never want anything to do with you or Christ again, at least for a long time. God has a way of pulling people back, doesn't he? But, but we tried to tell the kiddos that, to let them know that this was a, a calling on the whole family. And there were sacrifices involved and demands that were placed upon our lives as a result of the calling on my life and, and all. And, but that there would be one day a reward for all of us, young and old, for being faithful to what God had called us to be as, as a family. So the household does have to be different and there has to be a sobriety about that with the parents and then also with the children. Now in verse 10 he moves on to talk about the high priest. And, uh, and the high priest was different from the priest. Again, as I said, there was only one high priest. The high priest got replaced when the high priest died. Then his son would take his place. So uh, he who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head or tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. So talking about the high priest now, when the high priest comes into contact with death, even death among the closest relationship, uh, mother, father, son, daughter, the priest could touch those, those bodies, but the high priest could not touch those bodies. It was a higher standard for him. Now the, the high priest represents in the Old Testament, he is a type or a shadow of Jesus, who is the high priest, who, who conducts his priestly duties, the right hand of the Father for us. So he's a picture of Jesus in all of this. Now, one of the reasons I think uh, that uh, God put this restriction on the high priest that that he was not to, you know, mourn or tear his clothes or throw ashes up on his head or, you know, fall down by the body and weep and cry and these kinds of things, is again, people were looking at him in a super extraordinary uh, kind of way. And so if he showed those kinds of, of uh, signs of mourning, then people might misrepresent those actions as meaning that he disagreed with God and God's dealing in this person's life. And he was be careful not to send mixed messages uh, to people. Oh, God, how could you do this? And, oh, you know, and then and people, whoa, wait a second. You know. So the demands of the calling of a high priest, uh, they, they superseded even family ties, just a part of what went with, with the calling. So he, he couldn't touch that 
a dead body. And one of the significant reasons for that is when a priest would touch a dead body, he would be ceremonially unclean until evening, which constituted the beginning of the next day for the Jews. So he was put out of commission for a while. But there were thousands of other priests to do the duties. There's only one high priest. And the high priest is a picture of Jesus is never to be off duty because Jesus is never off duty. He ever lives to make intercession for us, the Bible says. So he was not to be defiled by a dead body, be taken out of commission because of ceremonial uncleanness, and then, uh, you know, the, the office is vacant for a number of hours until a new, new day uh, begins. And so there was that restriction. In verse 12, we're told he was not to leave the tabernacle um, in, in, in the event uh, to, to, in order to, to attend a, a funeral. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. So it doesn't mean that he, could, he had to stay at the tabernacle day and night. What it was saying is when he was on duty at the tabernacle, he couldn't just leave because of attending a funeral. Now notice here also... In verse 13, in terms of who he was free to marry. And he shall take a wife in her virginity. He was only to marry a virgin. Now remember, the, um, when, when he would die, his oldest son would then become the high priest. And, and so the only way to assure that this son was truly a descendant of his was to marry a, a virgin. And so that's what he was, was to do because the high priest lineage would come through him. So he was only to take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife, nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I the Lord sanctify him. And so uh, in, in all of this, it's actually a very beautiful picture of Jesus. Because Jesus is a high priest, he is espoused to what? A chaste virgin, the body of Christ, the church. And that's what Paul said, I have espoused you as a chaste virgin uh, to Jesus and, and encouraging us to holiness. And so uh, the only way he could represent that side of Jesus and this to be a picture of Jesus was to marry a virgin. And so you had the spiritual typology, then you had the practical side related to assuring that the high priest would uh, be of the lineage of uh, coming from uh, Aaron. And then uh, he said in, in verse uh, 16, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron saying, No man of your descendants in any succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. And so the, he's, he is requiring um, kind of a, a physical perfection, so to speak, of the high priest. He couldn't have any obvious defects. And so he speaks of some of those defects. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a, a blind man or lame, uh, who has a marred face or a limb that's too long, one's longer than the other, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a, a defect in his eye, so pirates were out. Okay, no pirates for the high priest. Uh, no eczema or scab 
or one who is a eunuch. Now, this doesn't mean that God hates these kinds of people, but again, you've got the, the priest, this high priest is a picture of Jesus. And the interesting thing about Jesus is he is both the high priest, uh, it, it, well, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, it, it, Jesus is, well, no, I'm not. Okay. This goes on all the time. I just, it just usually happens in front of the lima beans in the, in the supermarket. So, what? Okay, well, I'm back. If you only knew the weak things, the feeble, the things that are not. So, um, where in the world was I? I know I was beyond the pirates. I know that. So, no. I'm, so, the, the reason that God was asking for some kind of general you know, perfection related to these guys in terms of their appearance and in terms of their body is because they were representing Jesus, who is both the high priest and the offering. Jesus is unique that way. He, 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 he provides, he is the high priest, he also provides the offering in himself. And so in order to bring both of those things together, there needed to be this kind of a standard. Now, no man, verse 21, of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect can come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. And he shall not come uh, near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy uh, and the holy. So God loves these men. So it's not anything they could take personally at all. The, the offerings, many of the offerings that the, would be offered by the priests, they would receive a portion of those offerings. All of these other priests were to be sustained by this. They were to be fed by it. God loved them. God cared about them. But the, there's imagery going on here. God's doing a lot of things at once, and that's why he put the restriction on them. Only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, and lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all of the children uh, of Israel. And so he just, uh, uh, Moses obediently delivers the word. Now, chapter 22 further uh, demands concerning holiness made upon the priests. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and there's two reasons. That, see, that is a reason word, that they may separate themselves uh, from the holy things of the children of Israel. So he's, what he's going to speak now is in order that they, they would conduct themselves in a holy way. And then number two, that, that's a reason word, that they may not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. And so those were the reasons that he gives them uh, for what is going to follow in this chapter. Now, I, I like, and I think it's important for us to bring it out uh, every so often, but I like that word there in verse 2, the word profane. It's important for us to understand what that is. We tend to think of something that's profane. We get the word profanity from it, don't we? We tend to think of something that is profane as something that is extraordinarily dirty or obscene or you know, heinous in some kind of, of way and all. But that's not how the Bible uses the word. The word profane literally means to be common. It means to be like everything else in the world. 
And so what God is telling the priests here is if you become like everything else uh, in, in the world uh, around you, then the problem is that uh, people are going to be looking at your lives and since you claim to represent me, they're going to come to the conclusion that I am like everything else in this world and it, and it isn't uh, true. So uh, that's what God is trying to get around so that if we, if we live like everyone else in the world as Christians, people will look and say, well, why should I follow their God? He's, he's no more able to change a life than the, the dumb things I'm following in life. And people do. They, they watch our lives and come to conclusions. And so God is a reflection on us. People think, people come to f- conclusions about you and I based upon the fact that we follow the God of the Bible. That's a reality. It's a wonderful reality. They come to the wrong conclusions, but anyway, that's another sermon. But, but people do come to conclusions about our God based upon how they see us. And so God says, I just want to tell you, so we're on the same page here on these things, so we're both sending a consistent message out in, into this uh, world. He said, say to them, whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord, which uh, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. And so no one was to uh, priest or their descendants was to eat any, any kind of uh, priestly portion that was uh, while they were ceremonially unclean or they'd be cut off from God's presence. doesn't mean they'd be killed. doesn't necessarily even mean they'd be banished from the nation of Israel. probably means, though, that they would uh, be discharged from the privilege of being a priest for the Lord. And, and so he gives some, uh, some examples of uncleanness. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or has a discharge, these are things we've looked at in the past, shall not eat the holy offerings until he's clean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has an emission of semen or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made clean uh, or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening So this is the way he could become clean, and he shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. And when the sun goes down, and the Jews, the new day didn't start with sunup like we do. Their new day started with sundown. That was the end of the day and the start of the new day. So here at the start of the new day, when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterwards he may eat the holy offerings because it is his food. Um, whatever dies naturally, if you, so you find some kind of an animal dead in the, the uh, you know, wild as you're walking or something, you know, some oxen has died or you're walking between fields or something, or, or an animal has been torn by, by beasts, uh, the priest were not to eat of that meat. The common person could. Um, it, they would be rendered unclean as a result of doing it, but they had the freedom to do that. The priest was not to do it at all, uh, defile himself with it. I am the Lord. And they shall therefore keep my ordinance, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby. If they profane it, I, the Lord, uh, sanctify them. And so the Lord warns them that they need to, as priests again, they need to be very serious to properly represent him in these things. And, and it's interesting, God, when he talks about this death sentence for willingly disobeying God's word, you know, I'm unclean, I don't care, I'm going to go down there and eat that stuff and, and, and uh, 
you know, God can lump it or leave it and that kind of a deal. And, uh, and, and, or where they do something and nobody knows but them. And God says, well, I see and I, I'll know how, to, I know how to take care of this. It's a really big deal to introduce leaven or sin into the body of Christ, willingly to do it, especially to do it as a leader. Because what happens is it never stops there. Like leaven, a leaven will yeast, it will go through all of the dough and it will yeast, you know, and, and leavenate. Uh, yes, uh, I made that up for you. Uh, it will leaven the entire lump uh, on, on things. And that's what happens too. Someone comes in, you get a priest and says, I don't care about that, I'm going to do this and everything. And then pretty soon, 30 years later, everybody's doing that and disregarding God's command there and they're doing five times worse. God's, God's very serious about this kind of stuff. And, and again, in all of us, but especially with leaders, he said, I know how to take care of that. No outsider. So he talks about who can eat within the family. The priests, they had these offerings that would be given, and, and they'd get a portion of the offerings, and it was only to be eaten by his family, he and his family. He couldn't, he couldn't use the priesthood to enrich himself, to open up uh, Cohen's meat market by the, uh, you know, the, the tabernacle area and sell extra meat that had been offered to enrich himself. God was strict about these things. So no outsider, that is a, a, a guest in his home, shall eat the holy offering. He shouldn't eat uh, those, those things. So you have a guest over. It's your house as a, as, as a priest and all, uh, and they come into the area of the temple, and here's all of this food that the whole family's eating, and it would be hard for the priest to do, but the priest would have to do it out of a fear of God that was greater than a fear of man. He'd have to say, no, you can't eat of this, but we'll take care of you in this other way over here, but you can't eat of these uh, holy offerings. And, and so no one who dwells with a priest, just kind of a visitor, a guest making their way through. No hired servant, so hired worker couldn't partake of these holy offerings. Uh, they shall not eat the holy thing. But if a priest buys a person with money, so he has a purchased servant, that servant may eat and, and one who is born in his house may eat his food. And so God considered servants to be a part of the family and that's his heart toward them they were to be treated like everybody else in the family and they were free to eat of the offerings if the priest's daughter is married to an outsider that's outside of of the priestly tribe she may not eat of the holy offerings even though she's got the bloodline she's become a part of another family now but if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child, has returned to her father's house as in her youth, uh, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. And if a man eats of the holy offering unintentionally, uh, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth of it. So here you've got a guest in your house and wakes up in the middle of the night, he goes to the fridge and he makes a nice little mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich. And he eats of it. And it's part of the sacrifice. And unintentional, he's completely innocent in the whole thing. But if it was discovered then, uh, here, in, in eating that, then um, he would have to offer a trespass offering, which was a, a bull or a, a, something like that, and then add 20% of the value of the bull to that very, very expensive uh, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And so, uh, but that's how it was to be. Uh, taken care of. And they shall not profane the holy offerings uh, of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt 
of trespass when they eat their holy offerings, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. So the offerings of the Lord were not to be used to sustain or provide fuel or uh, health. You know, sometimes we'll pray, thank you, Lord, for this food and, and give me strength now to do your work today. Well, th- this food wasn't to be given to people for the, them to then use that strength to do something contrary to the Lord. It was for people whose lives were committed to him. Now, in verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses. And he's saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering. So God says, listen, when you guys come and you offer me an offering, then this is how I want those offerings to be uh, handled. So he sets down the criteria for it. Number one, he said, you shall offer the offering of your own free will. God doesn't want any offering offered to him that isn't of a person's own free will. Will. I told the same thing in the New Testament. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, But this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't want any single thing done for him or given to him by a grudging heart. It's like to cut somebody to just come up to you and stuff a hundred bucks in your hand. Here you go. Take, take food right out of my mouth and get you gun. What did you say? Take it back. And I mean, it just spoils the whole thing if someone doesn't do it with a heart of love and gratitude and 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 all of this. It spoils the offering. So God says, don't bring anything to me of the free will offerings that you that that you don't do uh, freely and have a heart. To do it, the offering was to be a male without blemish, so no acquired defect uh, in the course of the life of the animal from the cattle, from the sheep or the goats, uh, whatever has a defect, and uh, uh, so that's an inherited uh, defect in the animal. You shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect in order to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. And so we're offering an offering uh, to a perfect God, and so the offerings were to be perfect as much as they can be and, uh, uh, and be, because he's worthy of that. Anything less is unworthy uh, of him. Now he gives us some ideas of defects that, that in, in animals that shouldn't be offered to him in verse 22. This is really astonishing. Uh, he, he says, in, a, in essence, don't um, offer to me uh, those animals that are blind or broken or maimed. So you got this, you know, goat that's limping, you know, or lost two legs or something. Uh, or has an ulcer, so open sores on the animal, or eczema, 
or scabs. You shall not offer to the Lord, nor shall you make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord, either a bull or a lamb that has any limb that's too long or too short. Uh, you may offer that as a free will offering, but as a, as a, for a vow or a required offering, it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut. Oh no, the, the lamb just, you know, got cut and it's going to bleed to death. Get it down to the tabernacle quick and offer it to the Lord. <laughs> kind of thing. Get our yearly thing taken care of. We'll kill two birds with one stone. So, not anything that's torn or cut nor shall you make any offering uh, of them in your land. And so the, the Lord tells them that this is, uh, this is what he wants, uh, wanted from them. And what's fascinating is that the Lord would have to tell them that and that the Lord would have to tell us that. Why would he say that? Except that he, they would do that and we would do that sometimes if he didn't forbid it. There's something so ugly and selfish about our flesh. Here's God. I mean, he's talking to people where he's, he is meeting their needs. Everything that they have has come from him and all. And then when it comes time to offer something back to him, he knows they're going to go to their flock and take the crummiest animal and offer it to me. This is selfishness. So terrible. And, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons that God speaks and has us as his people give to him, both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You know one of the most important things that happens when we give to God is that we give away a little bit of our selfishness every time we do. And we have a lot of selfishness to give away to him. So God knew that what would happen is, here now is the time to offer this, this offering for a burnt offering or an offering for a vow or something. And the person would go out into the field and they'd see all these healthy sheep and everything. And then they'd see one limping or obviously sick and about to die. They grab that one, let's get that down there. And here they bring it to the priest and the priest just sees all this junk being brought to God. God said, don't offer that uh, to me. And, and there, it, there's funny that there's that, there's that tendency um, in, inside of us. I think about uh, the old joke. I heard it many years ago, and I, I like it. It's a, a story about a, a rancher who had uh, one of his cows gave birth to twin calves. And uh, after he had the twin calves there, I mean, he spoke to his wife and he said, well, we're going to keep one calf for the family and the other calf is the Lord's. And then uh, one morning as he went out to the barn, he discovered that one of the calves had died during the evening. He came back into the house and he's all solemn and said to his wife, the Lord's calf died. That's how it is sometimes, isn't it? It's terrible. But that's the kind of thing God was prohibiting. Interesting thing, even though he prohibits it, Later on in their history, Malachi, just before the end of the Old Testament period where God just went silent for 400 years, this is what they were offering up to God. And God rises up and he says, I am a great king. What are you doing offering me these things? It was an affront uh, to him. Now notice he says concerning 
Verse 25, something coming from a foreigner's hand. Nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. So they weren't to allow a foreigner that was in the land and come up, maybe come up and say, well, you know, I want to worship Yahweh. I want to worship Jehovah, the God of the Bible and all. And so he brings some kind of a leftover from his flock, and the, the priest wasn't to look and go, well, you know, he's a, he's, he's a Gentile, and, you know, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and so we'll just go ahead and offer it to God. God said, don't offer it to me, if it's the leftovers of his flock. I think maybe another thing that he could have been meaning is he's forbidden the children of Israel to go to a foreigner to buy a lamb to then offer to the Lord. Here's the scenario. Guy goes out, he's got a hundred sheep. In his, in his pasture there. He looks at them. Every one of them is beautiful. It's going to get, they're going to, every one of them is going to win a 4-H ribbon. And they're going to sell for top dollar in the market. And he says, wow, those are too good to offer to God. I'll just go to Gentile Joe's down here down the street and just pick up some crummy thing for half the price of one of these and then offer it to God. God said, don't do that. I mean, we laugh. But that's what's inside of us in our flesh, in, in the giving. God says, don't be doing that uh, to me. I mean, he really knows us well. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. So no animal was to be sacrificed that was less than eight days old. And I don't know what the reasons are for that. Um, maybe one reason would be uh, it would give you adequate time to realize whether the animal was without spot and without uh, blemish. Uh, whether then he goes on um, and he let's see, twenty-eight. There, whether it is a cow or a ewe, you shall not kill both her and her young on the same day. So you weren't to kill. A, a, a cow and a calf or a lamb and a ewe on the same day. And again, there isn't real clarity related to why this is a part of the law, but it is a part of the law. One of the things that might be, uh, one reason that might be there, heavy on the might, um, is that uh, sometimes people can get kind of you know, emotionally worked up in, in some kind of a scene. Here's the whole family. They got one lamb and one, uh, you, you know, uh, you. They've got one uh, cow and one calf. And they get so excited, they offer the whole thing up to God, you know. And, and then now they've lost their livelihood. They've lost the whole thing. And so it might be a little bit of a protection against uh, that kind of an, a, an emotional frenzy and, and all that where they'd offer something to God that they might regret the next day. And uh, it certainly would protect people from uh, unscrupulous religious leaders that talk to people about, you know, they use all these things to try and separate people from all of their resources. They get them all worked up in the service and now give everything. I see you, sometimes you watch Christian television and uh, on some Christian television and you see these guys that are just working people for money I'm telling you, there is a special place in hell for those folks. I'm dead serious. To represent God that way, something's wrong with you. You are fleecing people. You are fleecing old people. You are fleecing people who have nothing to give, and you're calling on them to do that. It's terrible. 
And why do I say that? Why do I say it so strongly? Don't feel bad about looking at that kind of stuff and assessing it that way and rejecting it as nonsense and worse than nonsense for what it does to the reputation of God. But these guys get on there and they always talk about Elisha and the widow and she took the little oil and the little you know, flour that she had and it was the last thing she was going to eat and the prophet said, well, bake it and give it to me and then I'll, you know, there'll be a great abundance coming your way with the oil and all. And she obeyed. You, listen, as soon as they're Elijah or Elisha, they can do that. You know, they word from, a true word from God on it. But they use that as an example. Give God that little tiny bit you still got in your savings account or the little tiny bit you still have in the cupboard and then God is going to bless you and they're flying they got jets and this and that all kinds of things and everything and these people are given the last little thing that they have and and, and I, there is a place for kind of protecting people from the, you know being uh, worked up emotionally or using guilt on them to try and get them to part with their final kind of, of possession and and so maybe there's a bit of that in, in, in all of it. At any rate, the point is, is that to, to fleece people this way is absolutely wrong. And therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. And, and so he, he tells them now, these are the commandments that I give you. And, and here's three reasons for keeping these commandments. Number one, I'm the Lord and I told you to. I commanded you and I'm, I'm worthy of obedience on this. Number two, you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so he tells them to obey these commandments because it's the only way they can properly represent a holy God in a profane and pagan culture. And, and that's our, one of our privileges as a Christian is to live for God and, and to represent him properly in this world. And then he reminds them that he is the one who sanctifies them and who brought them out of the land of Egypt to be your God, I am the Lord. He reminds them that the life that they have, all that they have, is because of his blessings in their life. He caught, wants them to remember what they once were and what he has turned them into so that their obedience would be in response to how good God has been to them. No one will remain, no one will be obedient to God without a, a good reason to be obedient to God. And, uh, and one of the highest reasons for being obedient to God is in response to how good He's been to us. The Bible says, We love Him because He first loved us. We love Him in response to the love that He has first shown us. And so He's asking them now, I want you to do this. I want you to obey me in this, and I want you to do it as a response to how good I've been to you. Well, listen, God will never be any man's debtor. We, he will always give us a greater reason for obedience in terms of our history with God, how good He's been to us, how He's blessed us. He'll always give us a reason that's greater for our obedience than any obedience He ever demands of us or calls us to if we just stop and take the time and remember our history with Him. And so he's saying, this is why I want you to live a holy life in the world. And so we'll stop there tonight. And uh, chapter 23, you can read ahead of time for next, uh, next week.